Welcome to How My Country Works with your host, Stephen O'Shea. Next up, located in West Africa, with the capital, Porto Novo, a population of 12.4 million and functioning as a presidential democracy, is Benin. In 1991, the citizens of Benin, which until 1975 had been called Daome, voted out their sitting president, Mateo Kereku. In most Western democracies, this would be a perfectly regular event. But when it occurred in Benin in the early 90s, it marked one of the first occasions of a peaceful transition of power on the continent of Africa. The former French colony has held on to this democratic tradition and after multiple elections, remains one of the strongest democracies in West Africa. However, recent moves from its current president, Patrice Talon, are threatening to undermine this shining example. But how did the country get to this place and how does it actually work? In order to dive a little bit deeper into this and the historical and political climate of Benin, I'm joined on the show by the journalist Paul Melly, who focuses on West Africa for the think tank Chatham House. Paul, welcome to the show. That's fine. Well, I was hoping you could start by just giving us a brief history of Benin. Well, basically, um, in West Africa has always been one of the more densely populated parts of the continent. And so there are quite a few historical kingdoms or empires that grew up in different corners, different parts of the region. And um, a number of them actually had names which carry on into uh, today's modern, modern map of West Africa, if you like, even though sometimes obviously the boundaries or the places where they sit are different. So you had the Mali Empire, for example, you have the Ghana Empire, and the Kingdom of Daome was um, one of those uh, kingdoms in the era before the colonial powers moved into West Africa. Right, so the rough area that is now known as Benin in the 1600s was known as the Kingdom of Daome, one of the most powerful actually in the region. But how does this change with the arrival of Europeans, most notably France? the colonial powers in West Africa, the climate wasn't terribly suitable for European settlement. So what tended to happen was that various European countries established trading posts or um, slave trading forts along the West African coast. And then afterwards, they gradually, um, France and Britain, who became the sort of predominant um, outside players in the region, they then began to build transport links, railway lines inland um, from the coast and uh, because they wanted to tap the riches of the interior. Interesting. So when the French initially arrive in the region, they begin by exporting slaves, but then that evolves into mineral exploration. And this is also happening in other areas of West Africa which is why Benin is kind of tucked in between the former British colony of Nigeria and the former German colony of Togo. What was this period like? Colonial power arriving had been pretty uh, brutal. In in some countries, colonial power had spread sort of through negotiation and political deals. But Dahomey was one of the places where there was a a fairly serious uh, war of conquest. Right. How horrendous. What was Benin or Daomi, as it was known at the time, like once it actually became a full French colony? 
Well, one of the things that was really stood out in uh, Dame was one of the main centers where the education system became most developed. And that meant that in the uh, later colonial period and in the um, early decades of independence, uh, Benin was a great source of people, academics, uh, journalists, uh, political advisors, very much the sort of intellectual class um, from across French-ruled West Africa, um, arguably really one of, this was just one of two places, the other being Senegal, which were real key hubs of sort of the intellectual activity in the system. And one of the things that was unusual compared to some other colonial powers about the French colonial system was that, of course, you had discrimination and um, racism and uh, a sort of perception of, in this case, the French colonial power, but colonial culture being superior. But in the French system, uh, people who were from a colonized country, if they could speak French and attain uh, good secondary education, they could be French citizens and rise up the colonial systems. Interesting. So like some of the other French colony countries we've touched on in this series, like Algeria, Benin was very closely tied to France. But the French rule still really handicapped the development of the country, especially given the terrible and huge export of slaves from the country. When is Benin actually able to become independent? Independence came across French-speaking West Africa in 1960. Um, After the Second World War, uh, the French had um, gradually, they they had realised that the old colonial system wasn't going to be sustainable indefinitely. Right. So Benin's independence is kind of part of a broader move across West Africa for the colonial powers to grant their colonies independence due to the general economics of it and the push for greater freedom coming from within those countries themselves. Is that fair to say? France, like Britain, reconciled itself to the fact that independence was going to be inevitable. And in West Africa, uh, Ghana, which is not far from Benin, um, had been had become independent, I think, in 1957. And, you know, really after that point, independence was, was really very much the map. And so in 1960, um, most of the of the former French colony, most of the French colonies gained their independence. And whilst there are some violent uprisings, this seems to happen comparatively peacefully in West Africa, compared with much of the continent, right? In West Africa, it was rather different. Uh, independence was basically agreed in a fairly peaceful and consensual basis in uh, the French and British uh, colonies and happened almost simultaneously. And um, in the aftermath of, because in the aftermath of independence, because that process had been relatively consensual and because you had this class of people who were, who had held positions in intellectual life and in politics 
under the colonial system, they were there, as it were, to act, to take over leadership roles in these countries. But this initial success in establishing a new country doesn't last, does it? Like most of the region, after a period that the initial political systems that had been inherited from independence were overthrown by, um, in Benin's case, um, <clears throat> a largely military and uh, socialist um, system. Interesting. So the country gets caught up in the wider Cold War mentality. And after a military coup staged by Matteo Caracou, who we touched on earlier, a communist government is actually established and the country gets the name Benin. This doesn't really sound like a recipe for success. It was also fairly unstable, though. A number of military military coups, uh, political life was not that easy. Um, And the economy in Benin, but as in most of West Africa, slid into really desperate crisis. And um, by the late 1980s, that system was no longer really sustainable. Right. So by 1989, there is the fall of the Soviet Union. You have economic decline and huge unrest in Benin itself. What happens? Well, what, what happened was that people across West Africa, um, and it, and it's it's not not easy. If it, uh, those listeners who who um, who who will remember this period will probably have quite strong memories of seeing uh, how communism collapsed um, in uh, in Eastern Europe uh, during the latter part of 1989. There were huge mass demonstrations on the streets in countries such as East Germany and uh, Czechoslovakia, as it then was. Um, And um, people in uh, African countries, they saw this on television. And although most African countries at that time were ruled dictatorships or various forms of authoritarian rule, with strict censorship of the media, obviously what was going on in Eastern Europe, those regimes regarded as just as foreign news. And so they, that wasn't censored. So people could actually literally watch these people power revolutions in Eastern Europe. And they drew conclusions, many people, that perhaps they could do the same. And so you got right across French-speaking Africa, you got a wave of mass protest um, in sort of 1989, 1990 particularly. Right. So across the region at this time, there's huge protests and calls for democracy. How does it manifest itself in Benin? What happened was that Mathieu Kerekou, who was the authoritarian ruler of of the socialist authoritarian system in Benin, when confronted with the mass protests, and when some of his more hardline advisors were saying, right, well, you've just got to send the security forces out onto the streets and put down the protests, he refused. Wow, that's pretty monumental. And he said, no, if people are demanding change, then we're prepared to negotiate and discuss. So Benin set up a democratic system, 
with an election um, and uh, a new president elected. And during the 1990s, Benin became famous in Francophone Africa and in West Africa generally for the liveliness of its democracy. That's incredible to transition from communist dictatorship to a thriving democracy. How does it fare nowadays? I can remember someone saying to me just a few years ago, uh, you know, when you get two Beninois in a room, you have three political parties. <laughs> That's good. So it seems that the history of intellectual debate that we've spoken about has helped this democracy develop. But what, are, what has happened in the last few years, and really, really since 2016, or even more recently than that, is that this democratic culture has suffered a really dreadful setback. In what way? Benin is a country where uh, there has been genuine alternance, changes of power. People, people have lost power. So uh, through the ballot box and accepted the result. Oh, in 2016, the outgoing president had served two terms and couldn't continue. But he, his party had chosen their preferred successor candidate, if you like, Lionel Zinsou. And, and he, he was the prime minister. And he was facing an election challenge from Patrice Talon, who is a businessman who is probably Benin's biggest business tycoon. Whoa, so he's already pretty influential then. Zinsu is is a quite a technocratic banker. Uh, and his he didn't quite have the popular reach of Talon, and so he lost the election. Talon was elected. And then ever since he took over, there's been a sort of gradual erosion of democratic freedoms. What do you mean? So three years into his presidency, he's, he's managed to get this, uh, these rules introduced to tighten up the registration of political parties. And then as the parliamentary elections approach in April 2019, um, and the registration process is applied, all of the traditional political parties are uh, disqualified. Oh, wow. And the only two parties that are allowed to register to take part in the parliamentary election are two parties that are in Talon's own political camp, two parties supportive of him. So from being one of the liveliest, most democratic uh, parliamentary political systems in the country, um, Benin suddenly, becomes um, a monitor and finds the Beninois people find themselves confronted with an election where there's basically no serious choice at all. That's a shocking turn of events. And he's since put political opponents under arrest and violently crushed protests. How has this left people in Benin feeling? When you talk to Beninois, there's deep concern, there's frustration. Um, there's a feeling that people especially among many young Beninois, feel their democracy has been stolen away. How sad for the country. 
Hopefully, this is just a bump in the road for Benin's democracy in the grand scheme of things. I do think that's a really good point that has brought us up to date, though, in terms of where the system is at. Just moving away from politics slightly, are you able to talk to us about any festivals or celebrations that are particularly unique to the country? I wouldn't say particularly celebrations or festivals. <clears throat> I, but I, I would say it's more that, I mean, if anyone's lucky enough to get the chance to go there or, or even just to sort of look online about what Benin has, it's, it's the, it is a country where the, that rich historical legacy really is visit, visitable and accessible. What do you mean? If you go to Wida, which is, again, just an hour or two's drive along the coast from Cotonou, you, you can visit not only the slave fort, um, but you can also visit the, um, the voodoo temple. Of course, because Benin is actually the home of voodoo. And voodoo is quite important in Benin, Beninua life. Um, and people... It's it's a it's a it's a religion, it's a traditional religion. But there's also quite a lot of overlap um, because Benin is uh, a Muslim and a Christian country, so large communities of both. And many people would would both uh, adhere to traditional beliefs and, for example, be be Christians. How interesting! I had no idea. Thanks so much for your time today, Paul. No, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure doing it. Well, I think that's also a perfect place to end the show. Thanks so much to my guest, Paul Melly. Join us next time where we'll be exploring the Asian nation of Bhutan, which only opened to the world with access to TV and internet in 2000. As always, please do read us on your podcast app and recommend us to any friends that have a hankering for political knowledge. Follow us on Instagram at HowMyCountryWorks for extra insights and facts. And there you can message us around anything else you'd like to know about Benin or any other country. This podcast is produced by Stephen O'Shea and sound editing is by Ashley Brown. See you next time and remember to keep asking how my country works.